All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I have a very special guest today. We have Jay Schiffman on the show. Jay is a speaker, writer, consultant, coach, and advocate. He's passionate about issues of addiction and mental health. He has a really interesting story uh, that he's going to come on the show uh, to share. So, Jay, really happy to have you on today. Glad we're able to connect. Yeah, thanks for, for having me. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always great talking about issues of substance misuse, recovery, mental health, all that. And, and you know, I'm always delighted and honored when people ask me to, to come on and talk about those. So, so thank you for taking the time and thank you for, for being an advocate yourself. Absolutely. So let's, uh, you know, let's just get right into it. Where, um, you know, can you kind of take our listeners through kind of a journey as far as, you know, you, your personal story of kind of, you know, your experience with kind of falling into the depths of addiction, but then, then how did you kind of, you know, get through that and end up on the other side? Yeah, so I was uh, incredibly lucky. I was born into a, a very loving family in Cincinnati, Ohio. Grew up in the, the Jewish suburb of Amberley of Cincinnati. And uh, I'm the oldest of four boys, two loving parents. So I, I was, you know, very loved from an early age. I never wanted for anything is how I describe it. But when I was 11, like many in my generation, I'm 33, and my generation was essentially used as the lab rats and giant experiment aimed at trying to treat the uh, what was uh, called attention hyperactivity uh, or de deficit or, or ADD, ADHD, this whole thing, the, the whole spectrum of that, um, those, those uh, you know, what we would call those symptoms. So I was put on medication at 11 and we now know the way that that impacts the brain. And, and look, we can all remember what it was like to go through puberty. It's not the easiest thing in the world. And when you add high rates of chemicals to that changing brain, it shouldn't surprise anybody if it goes a little haywire. We know that now, at the time, that wasn't really talked about. And so when I was showing signs of uh, having some adverse effects to that, that high dose of medication, my therapist said that I was showing signs of a mood disorder. Which means, of course, not long after I start being treated for that as well. And by my late teens, it has a name. It's, it, it, I've been diagnosed as bipolar. And by the time I'm 20, I'm on five, six different medications a day, all at very high dosage. And my life slowly unravels. I, I am abusing every single one of those prescriptions. And uh, my, my therapist knows this, which is the really scary part. And, and, and that, at least, we've made progress on. When, when you see somebody now, there are databases that flag this. You know, I was filling my prescriptions in 12, 14 days in what's supposed to be a month. And my therapist was approving all of this. So now that would be flagged. It wasn't at the time. This is, this is uh, 2000 and. Uh, you know, five, 2000 to 2009 is roughly the period that we're talking about here. So by the age of 23, I'd, I'd lost everything. I, I, you know, I'd been working since I was 14 and, and jobs are gone. I'd been in school when I failed out. I was in a fraternity and, you know, all of that uh, is gone. And I'm spending most days on my couch, really unable to do much more. 
Uh, every morning I wake up and I'm immediately going into withdrawals. Uh, so I have to take a pill the minute I wake up or, or I spend the next hour or so wrapped around my toilet on my bathroom floor. And uh, that was a summer that I gave up. I, I, I just crashed. I dumped out what I thought would be a lethal dosage of uh, my prescriptions. And I called a friend and, and you know, told her what I had done. Uh, luckily for me, while I did go through an overdose that night, I, I spent the night handcuffed to a gurney at the local hospital and not the morgue. Um, you know, they, they took me to the hospital. I was monitored the whole time and, and they kept me from, from dying. And I came to the next day in a lockdown unit in another suburb of Cincinnati where I would spend three weeks in, in, in the, you know, what, what you see in the movies isn't far off. I mean, that's, that's where I was for three weeks. And after that, I, I was checked out and sent to a long-term care facility in the woods of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, in the Berkshires. And I was incredibly lucky there that I got to know people with both issues of mental health as well as issues with uh, substance misuse. And that's when I started to realize that my story, my experience was more like those struggling with, with drugs than it was with people who were even going through bipolar disorder, which is what I, I was told that I had. So I started to question my diagnosis. And one of the final straws came when I asked my therapist there if we could try getting off everything. Like, you know, look, this clearly, whether we decide this is a true diagnosis or not, very clearly the drugs are not helping me, right? I'm here and these drugs are helping other people are not helping me. And he was down for it if the goal was to get me off those drugs and then start with something new. And I didn't want to agree to that. I didn't want to go into this experiment with the only outcome being immediately starting on something else. And so I checked myself out. I was there against my will, but I wasn't there. I wasn't court ordered, so I could check myself out, and I did. And I went to live with my grandparents outside of Sedona, Arizona, where over about three months, I withdrew from all the drugs. I was on so many that if I had just stopped altogether, it, my body, I would have died, like right the way. I would have gone into a massive withdrawal and died. Um, so I slowly over three plus months, I, I withdrew and, um, and then spent the next five years finally going through the development that I should have gone through years before. It honestly took me a good five years for my body, for my brain to catch up with sort of my, my actual age. And then uh, at the same time, I was rebuilding my life. I was, it was sort of um, trying to rebuild the friendships that I had lost. I, I went back to school. I got, you know, jobs and, and kind of relearned how to be an adult. Um, and that took me to five years ago where I first told my story on stage. And since then, I've been speaking about it and uh, trying to, to end this stigma and help anyone that I can along the way. That's amazing. Thank so you. what what was that process? What was that five-year process like as far as, you know, what, what sort of, uh, you know, development did you feel like you had to, you know, go through to kind of get to, to the other side? Well, that's a great question. So it, everything as basic as just being able to sort of trust my thought process, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I, I had never had an emotion that I didn't mitigate or I didn't 
I guess address would be the better word with drugs before, you know, when, when you're on that high levels of medication, you know, if you've ever seen the show house, I like to use this analogy because everybody kind of gets it. The way he popped his Vicodin was what I was doing with Clonopin, which I was being treated for, for anxiety. That, that was my, that was my pill for that. And so if I would have any sort of a mood, I would just immediately take a, a, a Clonopin. So I didn't really know how to have actual emotions i didn't know how to deal with the thoughts in my head because for so long i'd done so with by treating my myself with with my medic my medication and not only that i was on such high medication that if i wanted to sort of experience anything at all you know the same way that one of my friends at the time may have you know um uh, taken some kind of other drug for me that was cocaine because it was the only thing powerful enough to cut through what was already in my body. So I had to learn how to have a good time in my own head and and not immediately want to leave this world. So that was a big part of it. And then also learning life skills. You know, when I was struggling with my substance misuse, I didn't know how to keep a budget. <laughs> I didn't know how to pay my rent. I didn't know how to pay my bills because the only thing I cared about was making sure that I had enough drugs to keep me from going through withdrawal. So it was it was the entire spectrum of what it means to be a person, what it means to be an adult that I had to relearn and teach myself. And was it was it mainly a process, like an internal process of you sort of just having to, to sit with these different emotions and sort of process this stuff? Or, or were there people who sort of coached you or, or kind of, you know, guided you through it? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I wish I could give you a black and white answer, but the answer is both. Um, you know, there was a lot of self-discovery. I, I uh, definitely do feel a little sense of, of uh, sadness for the young woman I was dating at the time uh, and for people around me, because I'm sure that it was difficult seeing this happen to me. It, was, it would be like if you were, you know, I was 25 by this point. It would be like if you were 25, but your your best friend or your boyfriend was a, was a teenager. You know what I mean? Like it would be it would be tough to see them going through some of the things they were going through. But also, I, I had enrolled in school with a major of psychology, and I did that on purpose because I wanted to learn more about what had happened to me and about what was happening to me. So that was incredibly influential. And then also, my family was very supportive at this point. We had sort of I wouldn't say lost touch, but we had grown estranged during my my worst period, uh, besides my grandparents who I was living with. And they were very supportive by this point. I was living at home for a little bit before moving back out with some friends. And, you know, it was, it was, um, I couldn't have done it without them for sure. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, one thing I may have mentioned to you, um, I'm not sure, as far as, you know, I, I work at, you know, an addiction medicine center. And, you know, we see, you know, both a lot of, you know, substance abuse along with mental health, you know, and, and there's sort of a, a divide, you know, between the different programs, but it's always, it almost always seems like you can't, uh, they go together. I mean, it's right. like, do you have a personal opinion as far as like, does one, does, you know, kind of doing a lot of drugs create the mental health problems usually or do the mental health problems cause people to create a lot of or use a lot of drugs or is it do you have any opinion on that well it really is a chicken or the egg situation yeah. right for a lot of people 
And I do think it, it matters for the person. As my story, you know, clearly shows, I was already struggling with, you know, look, I, I definitely have ADHD or, or at least symptoms of that, of that disorder. I've struggled with depression and anxiety my whole life. I have OCD that is low level that was inflamed during this period. But all of those were manageable until dr the, the drugs were added to the mix. So it's kind of hard, for, at least for my story, to break it down because at what level do those things become, you know, an, an issue, right? A quote unquote issue. Now, look, I was a rambunctious kid. I, I don't take anything away from that. Did the drugs help? It's, it's really hard to tell. So for me, it is really hard to split the two. You know, I've been super lucky to work with people both who have substance misuse issues and people who, who don't but are, are, you know, working on their mental health. And I think it's kind of what it comes down to is where do you, where is that line drawn where it's like, okay, are you struggling with anxiety? Well, right now, every, if you don't have some kind of anxiety with what we're going through, I have more questions about that than I do with you having anxiety. So I think it's, it's important to sort of draw the line at which point are we calling this, you know, an issue of mental health, but uh, that's all a long answer to your short answer, which is that I think it's really incredible that we're now starting to draw the parallels a lot more than we, we used to. So I think it's awesome that you work there and you are asking these questions because that, that question would not have been asked when I was, you know, in a, in the facility back in 2009, that question was not asked at all. You know, I was a person struggling with, with mental health. And as I told you in my story, the drugs were essentially off limits. It was, we do not question the drugs. Those are, those are only helping. So I, I applaud you and the people you work with. If you are asking those questions, that is a huge uh, step in the right direction. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. So switching gears a little bit, um, you know, I saw in your bio, you're certified in psychological first aid. Can you tell me a little about <laughs> kind of how you got into that, what that is, and, and just sort of uh, explain that for our listeners? Yeah, so first off, I want to say that I think it's something everyone should do. It's, it's essentially it's CPR for the for the, the mind, right? And I, I think, by the way, everyone should be certified in both. I am uh, I was certified in CPR. I got to get that that redone. As, hopefully as soon as COVID's over and I feel comfortable going to a personal class again. But I um, I carry Narcan with me wherever I go because, you know, look, we are still living in this opioid epidemic where people, unfortunately, where I was living in Cincinnati, you know, the, the, the numbers were skyrocketing and I felt that it was incredibly important to. But if you don't do it correctly, you're probably not going to hurt someone. I mean, it can, it Narcan can in the rare certain circumstances make it worse for someone. It's unlikely, but you may not help them the way that you, you can, if you know CPR, the same is exactly true for psychological first aid. So essentially what it is, is it just teaches you um, how to tap into this natural part of ourselves, the empathetic part that is of service during these stressful times. And some of your listeners may say, oh, well, that's that simple. I hope that's true. I hope for you, it just comes naturally. And some people are better just naturally equipped with that, uh, that ability than other people. But it is an excellent course that reminds us of some of these skills. And for if we have never used them before, it's sort of like building up a muscle. So if you are in a situation 
where uh, essentially, like I said, CPR for the mind is needed, you are going to make sure that you're helping and not hurting. Because uh, as these, this training you know, will, will teach you, it is definitely possible to make things worse if you try to provide aid in, in these moments and you're not prepared to do so, not only for the person that you're trying to help, but for yourself, if you are not prepared to be that person. So psychological first aid is just a, a skill-based class that, that teaches you some things and also reminds you of some of these things that do come naturally to us but aren't necessarily trained if they're not used often. Right, right. And what would you say, like, what are the biggest, like, concepts or, like, takeaways that you, you sort of got, you know, that might not be super intuitive or, or just things that have helped you be able to, you know, provide that psychological first aid if needed? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say there's two big ones that I, I that I took away. And obviously, this is very personal for, for everyone who's done this. But for me, number one was how important words are. Because if you are in an extreme state, let's say, God forbid, you're in, a, in, a, in, a, in an area where a tornado just came through, and someone says the wrong thing, uh, you're already on edge and, oh man, you know, it, it, and it's not their fault if you set somebody off because you don't know how to talk to somebody who's just lost everything. So watching the words you use is incredibly important. Um, that's number one. Number two was uh, how important it is to listen and take cues from what the person is saying. Again, if you rush in and you say, I know what to do here. And you try to tell somebody something who's just lost everything, or God forbid, it's just seen someone, you know, die in front of them. Uh, you're going to do more harm. That is just flat out true. So making sure you're listening to the person and hearing where they are, and then accommodating that in what you are saying to them and what you're recommending, because, uh, man, it is just so easy you know, think back to even, you know, if, if you've been in a situation where you have just been hit by something, something horrible has happened. If someone comes in trying to help, but they say the wrong thing, it's almost worse than if they had just said nothing. In fact, most of the time it is. Right, right. Yeah. So are these uh, skills or, or is this a practice you feel like, like, can you apply this to say, you know, like, uh, you know, with the homeless population, you know, obviously the rampant kind of mental health, you know, issues that they have um you know and obviously you know people see you know you know people they just deem crazy just doing you know and they, but they can't really do anything to help or, or they just choose to kind of be bystanders is this do you feel like you got any skills by any chance that might help kind of deal with one of those situations well i definitely would say first um to your specific scenario if they feel if someone feels like they don't know how to do something i i you know i i've been there i feel that way right now watching what is happening on the streets of our country my wife and i have been to a protest i've given money you know i've used my voice but it still doesn't feel enough in that case it's better to not push it's better to not you know risk doing something that could make it worse right so make sure you're following somebody else's lead if you don't know how to help if um if if you if you've been through this training that, that I have, and by the way, quick shout out, I did it through John Hopkins. Um, I believe it was their their 
ooh, I don't want to say this wrong, but I believe it was their health like university. Uh, I did it online, which was awesome because I did it right before COVID. Uh, and so it's been helpful as I've been coaching people through this process. Um, that's what I do. A lot of is, is personal coaching and this, this class 100% helped with that because so many people are feeling emotions that they just don't know how to deal with right now. And that is so normal. I mean, we're all feeling that way, right? None of us, most of us, that 0.001% that has lived through a pandemic before, but most of us have just no idea how to process these emotions we're feeling. So this definitely has helped me a lot with that. But it, it, in terms of that specific scenario, yes, I think it, it is incredibly important to be able to sit with the person and listen to them because, you know, it, any situation where we're treating people with an umbrella, we're going to end up hurting in some way. So we have to tailor a lot of these responses to an individual person. You and I see it all the time in the substance misuse world where we try to, you know, just if, if we go into a situation thinking, okay, well, you've struggled with alcohol, so here's what we're going to do, you may leave that person behind if, they're, if that plane doesn't actually fit what they're, what they're struggling with. So making sure that we're tailoring our response to an individual and not our, our presumptions about their situation, uh, I mean, that's incredibly important anyways. But yes, this course did help with that. Right. And I mean, that seems like an approach, at least that I endorse, you know, just with like psychology and psychiatry overall, you know, treating, you know, the individual compared to just, you know, labeling someone as, you know, you have this disorder, you have that disorder, and then, you know, giving whatever kind of standard course of treatment, you know, not to say that can't be helpful for some people, but I think like grouping, you know, just grouping people and then doing a one size fits all thing like doesn't Definitely. seem to work well. No. And, you know, it, 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 being someone in recovery, you know, I struggle with prescription pills, but there may be a lot of overlap with someone who struggled with heroin. And just because I struggle with pills and you struggle with pills, it doesn't mean our treatment is going to be exactly the same. In fact, it's definitely possible that it's going to be very different. Interesting. Right. Absolutely. So switching gears a little bit, tell me, uh, you know, you have a podcast as well. Um, so tell me kind of the, how you got started with that. What was your, your interest in doing that? And, and tell me a little about it. Yeah. So before COVID, I was doing a lot of public speaking. That's sort of my bread and butter. Um, you know, I truly believe those of us in the recovery community need to be telling our story all the time. It's how we break down stigma. It's how we educate. And um, I was doing a lot of that and I love doing it. it. As you can tell, I, you know, I love talking about these topics and it, it's good because, you know, I'm not getting rich off it. So it's okay that, that, uh, you know, I do this every day because I love doing it. But when, when COVID was starting to look like it was going to be as bad as we, you know, obviously ended up finding out that it was, uh, I was worried. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, keep getting my message out there. I went, um, like, no joke, the, the day after the NBA season was canceled, when we kind of look back and go, okay, that's the day everybody knew this was going to be horrible. Uh, I lost three speaking engagements that first day. And I was like, oh, God, you know, this is going to be bad. Luckily for me, three weeks or a month before that, uh, a buddy of mine had had just started his own podcast. He's a comedian in Chicago, one of my best friends. And uh, I love him dearly. He's basically a brother to me. And I said to him, look, man, I love you. But if you can do this, I can do this. So, <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I, I looked at that and went, all right, I'm going to start doing this. And that was in February. 
So when things got as bad as it was in, in March, uh, I was already on the way. And, and it, I'm really glad that I did that because it's been my ability to keep getting the message out there and keep talking to people during this during this crisis. So I've been very lucky that, uh, you know, I signed up for some some um, websites, some some podcastguest.com. I'll give a shout out to that one because that one's great. And uh, I used that early on to get a couple of guests. And, you know, it's just, as you know, well, the topics of mental health and substance misuse are a thing that people want to talk about, but they're scared. Stigma is very real. And what better way than a podcast? They can put their headphones in and no one has to know that they're listening to this. So it took off. And, and I've been really lucky in that respect. Uh, people have been excited to come on the podcast. Um, what's been great is that I, I started with just people who work in the mental health or substance misuse world. And that's, that's, that's kind of spiraled a little bit to, in a positive way, to talking to people who, uh, you know, touch it a little bit. So I've talked with some musicians about what it's like to maintain your mental health uh, on the road or touring. Um, one guy, you know, he just uh, crossed a million streams on Spotify and we had a really honest conversation about how you stay grounded. You know, that's a big number. Like I, I don't know how I would deal with if a million people were listening to my music, that would inflate my head just flat out. So we talked about what that's like to stay grounded. And, uh, you know, I, I'm talking to some entrepreneurs about how to maintain a sense of self in the entrepreneurial world. Uh, so it revolves around topics of mental health and substance misuse. And a lot of the people are in the substance uh, misuse and, and mental health world. But there's also people who we, we stay on that topic, but in, in different atmospheres as well. Sure. A question that just came to mind as, as you were you know, saying some of that stuff. When you, you know, when you look back and you originally made that, that decision to start sharing your story, um, you know, before the podcast, just I'm mm -hmm. talking just your gen general story of, you know, addiction and recovery. Was it something that was tough? You know, did you want to sort of, you know, keep it internal, not let people know about it? Um, and then what was sort of like the process of, of sort of going public with that? Yeah. So thanks for asking that. Cause this is like my favorite story to tell. I, um, in 2015, I, I've, I've got a buddy, he's still a good friend. And in fact, he's, um, been on the podcast. He introduces me every podcast. It's a recording for, of him, but he runs a, an organization in Cincinnati where I was, where I'm from, where I was living at the time, uh, that gives influential or well-known Cincinnatians the platform to tell their origin story because his, his whole, uh, goal, he and his, his partner, were to create communities through storytelling. And he knew my story a little bit. Like I said, we're, we're, we're good friends. And um, he asked me to, to do this. And I was like, hell no, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Uh, nobody knows this about me. Even some of my closest friends don't know this about me. Um, and he asked me again. And I said, nope. And he asked me again. And I said, nope. And I went home to, to, to dinner one night. Uh, I was, you know, went to go see my parents. And I walked into my dad's study and, and, you know, he's sitting there reading the paper and I was like, so, you know, just this thing just happened. And I think it's kind of funny. And he said, uh, you know, why, why wouldn't you do that? And I said, well, I'm, I'm terrified, you know, and who knows what people are going to think about me if they know that, you know, I, I saw it as a, as a scarlet letter that I was in recovery. And I still remember this moment perfectly. He lowered the newspaper 
he looked right at me and he said, uh, fear is never a good reason not to do something. And he picked back up the paper as if he didn't know he just blew up my entire world. So <laughs> the next day I went to my buddy and I was like, all right, ask me again. And he did. And I said, yes. And on, uh, it was about 150 people in that room. And I opened with the joke. I've never told this to this many people who didn't have to be there before. Uh, I, I'm in recovery. I'm a recovering addict. And uh, the, res the response was incredible. I, I, you know, I had good friends who, like I said, had no idea that came up to me and were, were actually angry with me that I hadn't told them. And, you know, one of my brothers was there and he like broke down crying. I mean, it was, it was a beautiful moment. And it launched everything. I mean, everything that I do now is because of that night. So uh, the, the message I always like to impart when I tell that story is all of the fears are in your head. Every single one of them. I was terrified of what people were going to say, and none of it came true. In fact, it was all the opposite. And, and I cannot stress that enough. All the fears are in your head. None of the bad stuff's going to happen. Right, right. I mean, it sounds like you, you sort of got over that by just facing it head on, you know, yeah. if you had, uh, you know, kept refusing to do that, you know, those invitations, you probably still would be, you know, afraid to do it, right? Yep. And, and the Choose Your Struggle podcast wouldn't be a thing. And I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you all, all of it because of, of one night. And I, you know, I just, I cannot thank my dad enough for those wise words of uh, wisdom. And I can't thank my friend enough for for continuing to push and, and asking me to be on his show. Absolutely. So I'm kind of curious, you know, as we've sort of, uh, you know, alluded to the, you know, with the COVID-19 stuff going on right now, um, what do you see as sort of the, I mean, it could be both the psychological and the substance abuse, you know, impacts of this. Cause you know, we've already seen, you know, alcohol sales, you know, what, go, you know, go through the roof. Right. I'm sure, you know, if there were able to be similar statistics about, you know, drug use, I'm sure that, you know, the rates of that would be escalating sim uh, similarly. So what do you, you know, what do you, what do you feel like is going to happen, you know, in the coming years or just what, what's going to be the impact of all this? Well, I, uh, I mean, that's a great question. And I think that anyone who, who says, well, this is what's going to happen, you know, usually is wrong. So I'm scared <laughs> to, to be on the record. That being said, there are a couple truths that we're already seeing from just those couple of months. And uh, the first one I think is so incredibly important is, you know, we all know the saying, if you work in the mental health world, one in five, and that's the estimate that at any given moment, one in five people is struggling with an issue of mental health. And that can be anything as kind of every day as, as anxiety or all the way up to, you know, some of these extreme issues of mental health. There was an estimate not long ago, and I, I don't want to be wrong about who it was, and I, I should have looked this up, but I didn't. But the estimate by, by someone, a leading organization in the field was that during COVID, that number blossomed to one in two. So right off the bat, we are going to see more people waking up to, oh, this is what it's like to live with anxiety or, wow, I never realized that I need to do more for my mental health. So I truly believe that it is going to leapfrog us vastly forward in the field of empathizing for issues of mental health because more people are going to know what it's like to 
to live with these issues. And not only that, more people are going to be farther along on the spectrum of feeling like they need to do something about it. You know, there's this saying uh, uh, before stage four, right, where we only uh, address issues of mental health when we're at stage four. I think we're, that this is going to help that because so many people are going to go, I never want to feel that way again. If that means starting to work on my mental health now so I don't, fantastic. So I think that's number one. Un unfortunately, conversely, with issues of substance misuse, we are seeing an explosion. You, you said it correctly. And, and now with alcohol sales, there was, there was a lot of people stocking up because there were these unfounded rumors they were going to close alcohol stores. Uh, but but you're also not wrong. I mean, we are seeing way more use of, of alcohol and substances. And again, that goes with my first point. If you're dealing with an emotion that you're not prepared for, that you don't know how to handle, you're going to turn to crutches. I mean, that is just, you know, basic mental health math, right? And what is the easiest crutch? A substance uh, of misusing a substance. So I do think we're going to see rises in uh, rates of people who are going to need treatment for uh, substance misuse. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. I hope all those estimates are wrong. That would be wonderful. Uh, I don't think they are. Um, in Cincinnati, they just put out a, I, I still keep up with all my, my friends in Cincinnati and they just let me know that there's a, a, a call because the last couple of days they've seen an extreme spike in overdoses. Uh, that shouldn't, that's unfortunately not that surprising. More people are, are using more. It's a, they're trying to deal with these emotions. So um, I think those are the big two. Uh, one's a positive and one is a, unfortunately an extreme negative. Right. You know, the other thing I was just thinking of, you know, with all the, you know, people doing telehealth visits now, right? Kind of the explosion of that. Um, you know, since there is still the stigma, you know, surrounding mental health and, you know, s substance abuse, you know, if people are, you know, more inclined now to do these, these telehealth vi visits from their own home and be able to, you know, speak to practitioners without, you know, going out to the office or whatever in fear of, you know, whatever being seen or noticed, you know, that could be, you know, a potential positive of it too. I was just, you know, no, it just came to my mind. You're definitely right. It is. And we're seeing that already. They've already shown that the numbers of people using it are slowly creeping up. But not only that, it allows you to easier uh, shop for, for a therapist, you know, um, there's this misconception. I'm sure you hear this all the time that, you know, people kind of try a therapist once and they're going, Oh, that didn't work. It must've been, you know, therapy just doesn't work for me. Well, no, it takes a while to find a, a therapist. You have a good relationship with sometimes. So, um, you know, I do think the telehealth helps in that sense, because it allows someone to try it and go, you know, maybe that wasn't the best fit. I'll try this other one. And you never, you never have to leave your home. You can be right there at your computer and, and get a sense of who they are as a person. So I, that's also a positive for sure. Right, right. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, we, we touched on, you know, we just touched on therapy a little bit, but, you know, as far as other sort of modalities that you know, you think uh, are helpful that, that, that currently are out there or maybe, you know, that we'll see going forward in the future, you know, as far as, you know, being able to help people kind of, you know, deal with, as you were talking about, kind of deal with all of the, this range of emotions um, without, you know, turning to a, a substance as a crutch, you know, what, what sort of stuff in that, uh, in that regard is, is interesting to you? 
Yeah. So I would say number one, as I said, you know, mental health coaching is still very new. I didn't know it was a thing until about two years ago. And mental health coaching, for those who are listening, I've never heard of this. Think of the mental health coach as the personal trainer to your therapist being the doctor, right? You wouldn't go to your doctor and say, hey, doc, what am I going to lift in the gym today? The doctor would look at you like you're nuts, right? But you also wouldn't go to your personal trainer and say, you know, I'm having a weird pain in my side. He hopefully would say, well, go to your doctor. What are you doing talking to me? So that's sort of the relationship. And that's where I come in. I'm not a, I'm not a therapist. I never want to replace your therapist. I personally think that every person should see a therapist. But if you're spending, you know, most people, if they're seeing a therapist, they're going once a month, once every two weeks. If you're spending your entire time talking about things like mindfulness or, or practicing, you know, daily affirmations, these are all really important things. You know, to be frank, it's a little below the pay grade of your therapist. You should be using your time with your therapist for these higher level things that are really, that's what they're trained for. That's what these amazing people are best at. So that's where someone like me comes in. You know, if you're struggling with suicidality, I'm going to, my first thought is going to be, you need to probably call 911, but, or call your therapist. It's not where I come in. But if you want to talk about mindfulness, if you want to talk about things you can do every single day, if you want to talk about sort of the surface level stuff that, you know, you just need someone to talk to, that's where I come in. So, so number one is the mental health coach is a newer thing that's growing. Uh, I love it because it allows me to help people. Uh, and also it allows me to sort of preach the gospel of going to therapy, because I think we should all be, be doing that. You know, I told a, a friend not long ago that uh, since I moved here, uh, in, into Charleston from Cincinnati nine months ago, I've seen five different therapists. And he went, dude, are, are you nuts? I was like, no. I was like, you know, the first one was good at one thing. And the second one, I didn't really like that much. So I would try the third one. And, you know, he and I are working on this different thing. And then my wife and I tried a couple different marriage therapists. So, you know, it's okay to, to use therapists for different things. But if I was going to my, my therapist and saying, so how should I practice mindfulness? That's a little you know, below his pay grade. So uh, definitely that's number one. But then number two is we also need to be practicing mindfulness more. And that's not just meditation. Meditation is great. If you like meditation, if you can meditate to a beneficial state, props to you. Personally, I never enjoyed it that much. I, I can do it. I just don't get the, the, the benefits of it that I have found for other mindfulness practices. So I think we need to be talking about that more. We need to be teaching mindfulness um, beyond just medita meditation. We need to be encouraging people to practice mindfulness in ways that are beneficial to them. And that can help with that before stage four idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I love the, the sort of idea. I mean, the way I, I sort of think of, you know, what, what you've sort of been saying as far as like, you know, basically helping people kind of learn how to, how to actually operate their brains, you know, how to operate their minds. You know, it's something I always use the analogy, um, you know, with, with the patients I work with, you know, as far as like, you know, you don't just go to the gym, you know, when you have a, a shoulder injury, you right. probably would actually go to your physical therapist, you know, <laughs> but it's like people only go to like get help for their brains when they have a, you know, some kind of psychiatric psychological issue going on. Whereas like, right. it seems like with tools like mindfulness, um, you know, meditation, yoga, just to name a few, I mean, these are things that can sort of enhance or, or sort of build resilience, build resilience 100%. in people. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you, 
work with a good uh, mental health coach, and I, I in no way want to toot my own horn. I've worked with people, and at the after a couple sessions, we've gone, you know what? I don't think I'm the best fit for you. Let me try to help you find someone else that is okay. Um, but if you work with someone who's good and someone who gets you, you know, I come into every new coaching uh, engagement with literally pages of different practices because what works for me is not going to work for you, or it may, it may not. We don't know. We have to work through this together. So if someone comes in and day one is like, I want you to, to meditate, I want that. Does anyone listening to go, well, what if I don't want to meditate? You know what I mean? I want you to be able to have that conversation with your, uh, with your mental health coach exactly as you put it, the same way you would with your physical trainer. If they came in and said, you know, I want you to run five miles today, you'd be like, I I, I don't know if I can do that. You know what I mean? Like you need to have that conversation with them. Uh, and if they're trying to force something that you don't think you can do, you should feel empowered to say, Hey, let's slow down a little bit. Cause I don't think I'm ready for that. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. And how long, so how long have you been doing the coaching for? Yeah. So here's the funny thing is I, I started a couple of years ago and I was doing yeah. it for free because, uh, I didn't know mental health coaching was a thing, to be quite honest. And I had friends who would just, you know, like I said, once I started speaking about this, people just started flocking. And and I mean, I mean that in the best possible way that people were just going, look, I know you'll understand. I know you've been through something. Let's just, you know, would you mind if we talk? I'm always, always open. And, and that's anyone listening to, if you just need someone to talk to, find me, let's chat. But uh, in the fall of this year, uh, I, I was working with, with a friend and she went, you know, you're really good at this. And I said, thank you. That's, that's very kind. She said, no, no, no. Like, why don't you do this professionally? And I had just not long ago learned that mental health coaching was a thing. And, you know, a little bit of it was me not wanting to believe my own bullshit, right? I mean, I was like, oh, who am I to do any of this? And thankfully, that friend was like, uh, get over it. You're good at this. You can help a lot of people. So um, I've been doing it officially since the fall. So about nine as uh, seven, eight, nine months now. And, um, you know, been doing this unofficially for about two years. Sure. So my question I have for you is, you know, what if, you know, as a coach, what have you, you know, since you look back, say, you know, the first person that you worked with until now, you know, what are the biggest uh, sort of things that you feel like you that you've learned in order to become, you know, a really good coach and be able to help people, you know, more so? Well, that's a great question. And I do want to say, if you're hearing this and going, man, this guy must have 50,000 clients. No, no, no. This is still growing. This is, this is still a thing that I'm, I'm, you know, between you and me, I'm still struggling with how to charge all the time. You know, some people come to me right off the bat and say, I want to be an official client. Other people, you know, they're friends. And so I don't really feel comfortable. It's, it's, a, it's a growing thing. It's a gray area. For those who have actually been clients, I'll tell you one, one story. Uh, a woman approached me. She she heard me on someone else's podcast and reached out and said uh, she told me this the, the the situation with with her son, who um, had relapsed twice after after going through AA, and um, she said to me, you know, it's like he doesn't care what I want anymore, and I had to help her understand. And this was the greatest challenge I've I've, I've faced as a coach so far was how to help her understand in a in a loving sympathetic way uh that he doesn't care i mean in that moment what he wants is what's best for him you know what i mean like if you're struggling with a substance misuse issue and your mom is there yelling at you 
you don't just like you don't care what what the the mom i mean you still love that person and then down in your core you want them that that relationship that's missing but you're not waking up and going i gotta do this for my mom i mean that's just not realistic uh, but it's hard to have some help someone understand that if they've never been there and that one was tough um you know i i succeeded by i asked her you know specifically i said before i talk to you anymore i would like to talk to your son uh, and we did. We had a great chat, and he's doing a lot better. Um, but but it it was it was a challenge because it was really hard for me to see this from a different perspective than the one I had lived, which is the son's perspective. You know, seeing this from hers and relating to her in that way was a, was very difficult. And and I definitely don't think I did it perfectly. Sure. Well, I guess just a learning experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Jay, uh, we're coming up onto the end of the show. I've really enjoyed, you know, this discussion we've uh, had today. Um, I want, you know, let uh, let people know, let the listeners know, you know, where they can find you, uh, check out your work, or get in touch with you. Um, you know, feel free to just share whatever uh, whatever you'd like with the listeners. Yeah. So the number one most important thing, and I know that you would echo this as well, is uh, don't suffer in silence. It is um, so important to reach out. You know, I can't tell you how many times uh, I have personally reached out because I'm, I'm in you know, private Facebook groups and stuff like that. My goal of being there is to reach out to people who are posting things like I don't want to live anymore and all that kind of stuff. Don't let it get to that point. You know, I'm here. Uh, I'm, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm sure you would say the same thing. You're here if somebody just needs to reach out. So there are people that want to be there. There are people that love you and that want to support you. So please reach out. If you need someone to talk to, if you're interested in mental health coaching, you can find me at my website, www.jshiffman.com, J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com. Uh, once this reopens, I've started talking to some people about public speaking again, probably the end of the year. We're not quite there in a safe way yet, but uh, if that's something that you'd be interested in bringing me in, I'd love to chat. And the podcast is called Choose Your Struggle. That's my brand. It's all about you know, when I was at my worst, I didn't really get to choose what I was struggling for. It was just getting off the couch, just avoiding withdrawals. And so now I choose what I'm struggling for every day. And it's this, it's making sure people understand and people talk about issues of mental health and, and substance misuse. So check out the Choose Your Struggle podcast. And I'll, I'll say this, because I say it every time I, I talk about the podcast, the people you hear are mostly people that have reached out to me and said, I want to chat. I think I have a good story. Uh, almost every time my answer is, yep, you do. Let's get you on the podcast. So, you know, if you think that uh, that you'd be a good person. Uh, don't be scared to reach out. I'm literally sitting here asking you to do so. Uh, so you can find me again at my website, jshiffman.com and find the Choose Your Struggle podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Awesome. Well, Jay, again, you know, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today and sharing, you know, your story, an incredible story of, you know, going through kind of the depths of hell and, and making it out. So I applaud you for that. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time and the honor. Look, I, I could talk about this stuff for hours, as I'm sure you can tell. And, you know, uh, talking to other people who are advocates like you and are on the front lines, I just, I cannot say this enough, but thank you. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for giving me the platform and other people the platform to talk about this and for being that positive change, man. We need more people like you. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Yeah. And for our listeners, you know, who enjoyed the show today, go ahead and uh, check us out on YouTube, like, and subscribe, uh, where Roscoe's Wetsuit is the YouTube channel. Um, and then you can also find audio versions of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So go ahead, check us out, whichever way you want. Jay, again, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.